This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 23 Traveling Incognito. My idea was to tarry a while in every town between St. Louis and New Orleans. To do this, it would be necessary to go from place to place by the short packed lines. It was an easy plan to make, and would have been an easy one to follow, twenty years ago. But not now. There are wide intervals between boats these days. I wanted to begin with the interesting old French settlements of Saint-Jean-Vierve and Kaskaskia, sixty miles below St. Louis. There was only one boat advertised for that section, a grand tower packet. Still, one boat was enough, so we went down to look at her. She was a venerable rack-heap, and a fraud to boot, for she was playing herself for personal property whereas the good honest dirt was so thickly caked all over her that she was righteously taxable as real estate. There are places in New England where her hurricane deck would be worth a hundred and fifty dollars an acre. The soil on her forecastle was quite good. The new crop of wheat was already springing from the cracks in protected places. The companionway was of a dry sandy character, and would have been well suited for grapes with a southern exposure and a little subsoiling. The soil of the boiler-deck was thin and rocky, but good enough for grazing purposes. A colored boy was on watch here, nobody else visible. We gathered from him that this calm craft would go, as advertised, if she got her trip. If she didn't get it, she would wait for it. Has she got any of her trip? Bless you no, boss. She ain't unloaded yet. She only come in this morning. He was uncertain as to when she might get her trip, but thought it might be to-morrow, or maybe next day. This would not answer at all, so we had to give up the novelty of sailing down the river on a farm. We had one more arrow in our quiver. A Vicksburg packet, the gold dust, was to leave at five p.m. We took passage in her for Memphis, and gave up the idea of stopping off here and there as being impracticable. She was neat clean and comfortable. We camped on the boiler-deck, and bought some cheap literature to kill time with. The vendor was a venerable Irishman, with a benevolent face and a tongue that worked easily in the socket, and from him we learned that he had lived in St. Louis thirty-four years, and had never been across the river during that period. Then he wandered into a very flowing lecture, filled with classic names and allusions, which was quite wonderful for fluency until the fact became rather apparent that this was not the first time, nor perhaps the fiftieth time, that the speech had been delivered. He was a good deal of a character, and much better company than the sappy literature he was selling. A random remark connecting Irishmen and beer brought this nugget of information out of him. "'They don't drink it, sir. They can't drink it, sir. Give an Irishman lager for a month, and he's a dead man. An Irishman is lined with copper, and the beer corrodes it. But whiskey polishes the copper, and is the saving of him, sir. At eight o'clock, promptly, we backed out and crossed the river. As we crept toward the shore in the thick darkness, a blinding glory of white electric light burst suddenly from our forecastle, and lit up the water and the warehouses as with a noonday glare. Another big change, this, 
No more flickering, smoky, pitch-dripping, ineffectual torch-baskets now. Their day is past. Next, instead of calling out a score of hands to man the stage, a couple of men and a hatful of steam lowered it from the derrick where it was suspended, launched it, deposited it in just the right spot, and the whole thing was over and done with before a mate in the olden time could have got his profanity-mill adjusted to begin the preparatory services. Why, this new and simple method of handling the stages was not thought of when the first steamboat was built is a mystery which helps one to realize what a dull-witted slug the average human being is. We finally got away at two in the morning, and when I turned out at six, we were rounding to at a rocky point where there was an old stone warehouse, at any rate the ruins of it. Two or three decayed dwelling-houses were nearby, in the shelter of the leafy hills, but there were no evidences of human or other animal life to be seen. I wondered if I had forgotten the river, for I had no recollection whatever of this place. The shape of the river, too, was unfamiliar. There was nothing in sight anywhere that I could remember ever having seen before. I was surprised, disappointed, and annoyed. We put ashore a well-dressed lady and gentleman, and two well-dressed ladylike young girls, together with sundry Russian leather-bags. A strange place for such folk. No carriage was waiting. The party moved off, as if they had not expected any, and struck down a winding country road afoot. But the mystery was explained when we got under way again for these people were evidently bound for a large town which lay shut in behind a towhead, i.e. New Island, a couple of miles below this landing. I couldn't remember that town. I couldn't place it, couldn't call its name. So I lost part of my temper. I suspected it might be St. Genevieve, and so it proved to be. Observe what this eccentric river had been about. It had built up this huge, useless towhead directly in front of this town cut off its river communications, fenced it away completely, and made a country town of it. It is a fine old place, too, and deserved a better fate. It was settled by the French, and is a relic of a time when one could travel from the mouths of the Mississippi to Quebec, and be on French territory and under French rule all the way. Presently I ascended to the hurricane deck and cast a longing glance toward the pilot-house. End of chapter 23